You are listening to a sermon by Robin Lee, Executive Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can gather together as your people with boldness and confidence because of what you've done for us by sending your son. We can come regardless of the sort of week that we may have already had in 2023, the things that we struggle with, the things that we so, the temptations that we so easily give into. We thank you because of Jesus, we can come into your presence, the throne of mercy, the throne of grace with boldness. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak and you would encourage and you would awaken all of us here. Help me as I communicate with boldness and with conviction to share the words that, that you want your people to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, most of us have probably been in situations where something really special got messed up on account of, on account of a couple of people. When I was in high school, I was a part of a group of, I had a friend group, and there were about eight of us, and all of us thought we were pretty cool, we all played different sports, and we were, we were okay, none of us was getting a D1 scholarship or anything, but you know, we were decent, and one of our guys was on ASB, so he was a leader, and so he, you know, we, we had this group, we were sort of proud of, proud of the group, and we spent, and this group got together since freshman year, you know, we were close, we ate together, you know, you look for each other, you know, during lunchtime, a couple nights a week we'd do homework together, Friday nights we'd hang out together, a really special group, and we thought we were so special, we even had a name for ourselves, wait for it, we called ourselves Team, right? I know, I know, weird and lame, but, you know, we thought we were special and we had a name for ourselves, and this was a really good group, and then come second semester of senior year, something happened. One of the guys started dating a girl, and that girl who was dating the guy was having some hardships, and so she decided to get some counsel and advice from one of the other guys in our group, right? And so... Or the other friend is trying to be a good friend to the couple. Eventually, he was too good of a friend. And so things started to get messy and, you know, no bueno. There was back, you know, there's a lot of talking behind each other's back and there was tension. 
you know, they're trying to play it off and the eight of us would still try to get together. I remember, you know, we would be at a Denny's on a Friday night and you could just tell it was awkward. You know, there was tension and eventually, you know, one or both of the guys wouldn't come out to the events and come to the gatherings. And, you know, it was really sad and it's still sad when I reflect on this because that's how we ended our high school years. You know, we had actually on our, your, not your gown, the thing you put on your head. Um, what do you call that? The cap, right, the cap. <clears throat> and we had team written on our cap, T-E-A-M. And, you know, we were proud of it, but we felt like we were a fractured group. And, you know, even to this day, you know, when us old guys now get together on occasion for a reunion, which happens like every 10 years, one of the guys still doesn't show up. In fact, that same guy in the last 25 years, I've seen one time. So it's really sad. Now, you may have experienced something similar. Maybe you're part of a girls group. You know, maybe you're in high school. You got a girls group and everybody's happy. Everybody's getting along. But then two girls like the same guy and everything gets catty. Everything gets messed up. Or maybe you're part of a sports team, you're on a basketball team, and you guys had a good season, you guys were excited, and then all of a sudden a new point guard transfers into the school. He's really good. And then so the current starting point guard is threatened, season goes along, he doesn't get as much playing time, he's upset, he's upset at the coach, the team chemistry is thrown off, this good thing gets messed up. Or maybe you're part of a leadership team at your company and you can tell, you know that there's tension between a couple of folks on the team. They're not talking about it. It's not out in the open, but you feel it and it affects the culture, affects the unity of the team and it affects the ability of the team to live out its mission. Now something similar is happening in the church at Philippi. In our passage, we have these two women who are very important leaders at the church, but they can't seem to get along. Now before I get into the, the, the conflict and what was happening there, I want to talk a little bit about what was a little bit about this church in Philippi. Now, the women who are in conflict are Iodia and Syntyche, and Syntyche, and it was public enough that Paul actually identifies them by name. Now, again, a little bit about this church in Philippi. As some of you may know, missionary Paul, he went on three different journeys, and during his second missionary journey, Philippi was the first church he planted. It was in 49 A.D., Okay, in Europe. So if you want to say, what was the first church that was ever planted in Europe? This is it. The church in Philippi, 49 AD, Paul sets it up. So he, the church has a very special place in his heart. It's the first church. Um, also, Philippi was a very important city. Um, it was in modern day Greece. And as a part of the Roman Empire, it was very important for the Roman government that the citizens knew how to behave. And these believers in Philippi were savvy enough that they knew how to navigate and wear both hats. On the one hand, they knew how to be good citizens of Rome and to, and to, and to follow through with their responsibilities, but they also knew that their first and primary allegiance was their citizenship to heaven as God's citizens. And so as effective um, citizens of Rome and as effective citizens of heaven who understand that their primary allegiance is to Jesus who saved them. They're effective. They're effective in, in, in impacting the culture. They're important in impacting not only the local region and back there was Macedonia and bringing the gospel to all of Macedonia. This is a church that was growing uh, numerically and spiritually. 
unlike a church in Corinth, they weren't dealing with scandal, things like sexual morality. They were growing numerically and spiritually. We also know that they were a missions-minded church. They were good to Paul. You know, Paul planted that church, and as he continues on with this missionary work, it's a church in Philippi that continues to support him financially, prayerfully, you know, so much so, but they're not just sending checks or Venmoing him money, they're sending people, and they're sending people to hand deliver the money so that as they deliver the funds, they can emotionally and relationally and spiritually encourage Paul. And we read about one of those guys, Epaphroditus, in Philippians chapter 2. So this is a church that 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 Paul loved. This is a church that all missionaries hope for when they think about partnering churches. And of course, it's our desire at New Life that we will be this sort of a church to the missionaries that we support. Now, so for all of these reasons, Paul loves this church. And as far as we can tell, that this letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi was written in 62 AD, planted in 49 AD. 62 AD, so it's been 13 years. For 13 years, this church is growing numerically and spiritually. Um, And again, as I mentioned, uh, this is the first church that he planted, so he's got deep love for it. In fact, you know, when if you look at some of the letters that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus or Colossae, here's how he generally opens up. He says, to the belief, to the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, or to the brothers and sisters and the faithful saints of Colossae. But listen to how he writes um, in, in the first verse of this chapter. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. It's almost like he's, he's, he's so exuberant in his affection, it's almost like over the top, right? Now, especially you almost feel bad for the other churches. You hope that the letters that he wrote here didn't get around to the other guys because they might feel like they're like the ugly duckling of the, of the church plant. So it's almost like if you have a lot of kids and you, know, you love all of them equally and everybody's different. But, you know, your first child, your firstborn, if he or she grows up well and, you know, is thriving, is healthy, your heart just sort of bursts with pride. You're excited. And that's what Paul is doing. He's super excited and he's thankful. You know, again, he's personally, you know, grateful for this church. They send their prayers. They send their money. They send their people. But, again, he also knows that this is a very special time in his life. We know from earlier in the book of Philippians that Paul is nearing death, and we know that he dies a couple years later. And he references the fact that death is imminent. And it's possible that a part of the reason why he is writing this impassioned letter is because he's, he, sees, he sees the end of his life. He sees that the race of faith is coming to an end, right? He sees the reward, and as he looks forward to that, he's thinking, Man, the race of faith, all of my suffering, all of my hardship, what's the reward? You. You are my joy and you are my crown. Sounds a lot like Jesus in Hebrews when he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, right? For the joy that Jesus saw, which was us. For Paul, the joy and the crown that was set before him was the church in Philippi. 
Now, which is why this conflict between these two important leaders in the church is of such concern. Now, we don't know a lot about these women, and we don't know a lot about the concern that they were dealing with, but here's what we do know. This disagreement, this conflict that they're dealing with, didn't deal with doctrine. It didn't have to do with the fundamentals of the gospel, because if it did, Paul would have done what he normally does. He would have just outright said it, stop it. You know, come back to the come back to grace, and he would have been very clear. So the issue is not with what they believed. It wasn't with the gospel. It was a question of execution. It was a question of how do you do gospel ministry? Again, we don't know a lot, but we can imagine if the dispute among leaders in the church didn't have to do with the foundations of the faith, with doctrine, probably had to do with how do you go live it out. Maybe it had to do with strategy. With methods, maybe it got real super, you know, the detail had to do with budgets and how do you do outreach, you know, what curriculum do you use, who knows, but the, the dispute, the, the disagreement had, didn't have to do with doctrine, it had to do with execution of that. Now, um, there is no right or wrong person in this disagreement, and in fact, some commentators who study the passage and look at the, the grammar, what they'll say is Paul is intentionally, he's very intentional when he says, I entreat Iodia. I entreat Syntyche. The reason for that is he could have easily have said, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche, right? But Iodia could have been like, oh, start with me, right? It could have been like, oh, you're singling me out. So he's being intentional to say, I entreat Iodia, I entreat Syntyche, to show that he's trying to be totally um, neutral here. So there is no right or wrong person. Again, as I mentioned, Iodia and Syntyche were important leaders in the church, which would have been unique. Um, Here's what we know about Philippi as uh, as a Roman colony. During that time, women in Philippi had more rights and more freedoms than their neighboring cities and and towns. And much has been written about the kind of unique freedoms that women had. Women were involved in business with their husbands. Women were involved with building temples. Women were involved even in founding cities. And regardless of what religion that different people followed, women were very involved in the religious life of Philippi, which is why it would not be surprising here that these two women are important leaders in the church, and this is not to say that they're liberal in their theology, um, but women in Philippi were able to exercise their gifts in a way that would have been much more progressive than their contemporaries, and they need a little bit more time to catch up. And so because these women were important leaders of the church, this conflict, this disagreement would have significant impact in the life of the church. Now, of course, conflict in leadership is not unique to the church. Um, books have been written about this, and there's a book that some of you may have read. Um, it came out about 10 years ago. It's called The Founder's Dilemma, and this author, who is, I believe, a professor at Harvard, you know, as he was observing companies that were starting up all the time in the 90s and early 2000s, so about 20 years of companies that are starting up, and he was, he was trying to understand what enables one company to succeed and what causes another company to fail. 
And in the course of his research, what he found was that 65% of business startups fail because of co-founder conflict. Businesses that have tremendous potential, have a great product that they're offering, a great service that they're offering, have the potential to make lots of money, fail because the leaders can't get along. But what we're dealing with is not a company that's focused on profits. What we're talking about is a church, is the church, the church that works with people, and what we're talking about is, is eternity. So, so much more is on the line. And now, for the remainder of our time, I just want to go through quickly the three commands that Paul gives to these two women who are stuck in this conflict. But it's not given just just to these two women. Again, when Paul's letters were written, the whole congregation would have gathered together. So this is an exhortation, not to just the woman, but to the entire congregation. And again, as I mentioned, Paul is near the end of his life, and this is a church that he loves passionately. And, and so he, he's very concerned about the unity and the maturity of the church, but he's also concerned about the witness and the mission of the church in Philippi. This is the heart of a pastor for a church that he loves. And I think that there's so much for us here to gain at New Life because I've had the privilege of being here for five years, but this is a church that I've heard about for many years. And when I look at the history of the church, church hasn't been around for 13 years, but more like 30 or 87, I don't know, maybe even longer. Long 40 some years, right? Maybe Bill, you're here from the beginning. A long time. And over the years, you know, New Life has had the honor of partnering with seminary students and pastors and missionaries and have been able to plant churches and see them independent and particularized. And so this, there's a lot for us here at New Life to gain, and the reality is conflict in leadership, conflict in the church, everybody's vulnerable, right? And that conflict threatens the fellowship and the unity of the church and can threaten the mission of the church, okay? And lastly, the other thing that I would say is I think believers in the church have a unique opportunity today um, and I, in, in the sense that to the extent that believers can show and demonstrate unity in the midst of tremendous conflict and disunity and anxiety, this may be one of the most compelling reasons that people consider Christianity, I think. Now, of course, in recent years, the church has not been much better than the world, but I think this is an opportunity for us in the midst of an environment where there's so much toxicity that, we, that this can be a very important part of our witness. Now, the first thing that Paul commands is rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, why would anybody who's embroiled in conflict why would anybody who's witnessing conflict in leadership rejoice? Now, we know that Paul's serious about what he says because he says, rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, the secret to rejoicing always or to have joy always is in the phrase, in the Lord. Now, if you look at your passage, you might notice in the first four verses, Paul uses that phrase, in the Lord, three times. He says, stand firm, 
in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And this is, and what Paul is talking about is a joy that's not based on how we feel about our circumstances or how people treat us, but rather it's an abiding and a deep, unchanging joy that's based on our union with Jesus, our union to Christ, and what's true about him, and the presence and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul is able to rejoice while he's in prison. And this is why he tells us to rejoice, to have joy always, even in the face of persecution and suffering. Now you see, on the one hand, even as Paul and the church in Philippi are praying for Paul's release, at the same time, they're to have joy even when he's not released. So on the one hand, you're actively praying for something, and we know what that's like. We're praying for our families, for our kids. We're praying for all kinds of things. But at the same time, even while you're temporarily praying for something to happen, there's an abiding joy that we can have. Because the joy that we have isn't attached to that circumstance or that situation. It's attached to the person, the work of Jesus, who we are because of him, the promises that he offers us. And this is a joy that sets believers and unbelievers apart. I want to give two examples, one silly and one more serious. Silly is really more for the young people at the church here. So let's just say when I go to the gym, happens like, you know, once a week, I'm trying to get better this year. When I go to the gym, let's just say I really like listening to Spotify. Okay, I, I just so hard for me to work out if I don't have it. And I get there, and I'm getting ready to listen. All of a sudden, Spotify doesn't work. I'm like, oh, gosh, right? And so I'm like, I delete it, and then I download it, download the app again, still not working. Turn off the phone, re- you know, turn the phone on again, still not working. So I'm like, oh, man, it's going to mess up my whole workout, right? But despite that temporary frustration, if I just take a step back and think about the fact I've got this smartphone, how crazy is this? It like brings together like 70 different things from my life. I have my Bible, I've got my Thomas Guide, my Google Maps there, I've got my email, I've got Netflix, I've got bank accounts, I've got all kinds of things, right? And, and, and for the believer, and again, this is a silly example and the example falls apart, it's not perfect, it's not all theologically correct, but as a believer, I can be okay with my Spotify app not working for a time because, man, look what I have compared to the guy who lived 50 years ago, right? Where they actually had to like, I don't know, like walk to the bank and do a transaction with like money, you know? Or the guy who like went to the movie theater, you know, made it a big ordeal. Or, you know, when you actually read a book, right? I and mean, there's all kinds of things where life is so much simpler and easier. And, and here's the other thing. If I find out later that my Spotify app wasn't working because it was getting upgraded to make my life even better, right? That's the perspective that believers can have. We go through suffering, we go through hardship, and we're not, we're frustrated, but it's that suffering and that hardship is in the context of this enormous promise. It's in the context of salvation. Another example, more serious, and this is something that I say very delicately, is let's just say you're going through cancer. And I know we have people in our church who are, who are struggling with cancer and have gone through cancer. 
And of course, when you're, when you're battling cancer, you will do everything you can to beat it, to get all of the best treatment, to overcome it. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the anguish and the sorrow, believers have the ability and the capacity to have a transcendent joy because our joy is attached to the one who has come. He has washed us clean and he secures for us an eternity. And we know that one day we will be with him, with fellow believers, where there is no more pain or suffering or sorrow. And it's been my privilege and honor here at New Life over the past several years to see so many of you go through that deep, dark valley of death with faith and with joy, and it's, it's so encouraging. And what Paul is saying again is that this deep joy is just as relevant in the context of Iodia and Syntyche in the context of conflict. This joy must affect the way we handle conflict. The fact that my identity is attached to Jesus and that I have an eternity that awaits and that I have a God who is in control, even if I'm in the midst of conflict, I am willing to lose. I can defer. Because it's oftentimes it's not so much about getting my way as it is to preserve the relationship and for the peace and the unity of the church, right? And to have this joy is what enables to us to do what Paul commands next, which is let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, when you're in conflict with people, there's nothing more frustrating than dealing with someone who's unreasonable. You know, someone who's unreasonable, and we've all dealt with people who are, they're unwilling or seemingly incapable of seeing the other perspective. They demand that you listen to them while not doing the same. As you make small concessions in the argument to make progress, they don't meet you halfway. They see the things that you've done to contribute to the problem, but they don't see what they've done or they downplay what they've done. And they get so caught up in winning the argument they don't see how destructive and toxic that their tone and attitude is to the relationship. They tend to be stubborn and proud, self-righteous. Again, we've all interacted with unreasonable people. And if we're to be honest, we've all been that unreasonable person. Now, if you don't think you have, just turn to your wife or husband and ask, or ask one of your siblings. Now, in the midst of this disagreement between these two women, the word that's used for, and, and, he, and he commands them, he commands the church to be reasonable. Um, and that word that's used for reasonable here in this passage, that same Greek word is also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, the Septuagint. And when you look up that word reasonable, the same word that's used here in the Old Testament, the word often conveys this idea of gentle forbearance, patience. It's the kind of gentle forbearance that God would have with his people. It suggests mercy, not giving somebody what he or she, what he or she deserves. It suggests creating an environment of safety. Just as much as when we approach God, with humility, we don't have to be afraid that he's going to be upset and overreact. You see, oftentimes, 
people are afraid to be in conflict because they're not sure how the person will react. The person isn't safe. Unreasonable people intimidate. They overreact. They leverage their physical or financial, intellectual, relational power to dominate. They make the other person feel weak or dumb or less human. Can you imagine how differently our disagreements and conflict would play out if we demonstrated the kind of gentle forbearance that Paul is talking about with one another. If we showed mercy, didn't give people what they deserved. If we created an environment of safety, how different would our home life, what our churches, would companies be? And as believers, we're called to be reasonable with the gentleness and with the patience that is godlike. The third command that Paul gives to this church is in verse six. He says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, what's critical to this command to not be anxious is what precedes immediately, which is the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. Now, this phrase, the Lord is at hand, is juxtaposed right between the second commandment and the third commandment, uh, the third command, and and it has um, a dual purpose. On the one hand, Paul is looking to the future. It's got a future purpose, and he's saying, the Lord's second coming is at hand, and because the Lord's second coming is at hand, you all be reasonable with each other. There's accountability There's a sense of even if you feel like there's injustice taking place in the church, outside the church, one day Jesus will come back and make all all things right. So there's a future aspect that's attached to the second command to be reasonable. But there's also a present context where the Lord is near now. The Lord is present now. And because the Lord is near, because the Lord is present, you don't have to be anxious about anything. Because the Lord is near, because the Lord is here, you can come to him with everything in prayer. Now, what's the connection between the nearness of God and anxiety? And let me, to illustrate, let me tell you a little, little incident that occurred. So it was last August, and I was at the airport, and it was... You know, I think because COVID was becoming less of a thing, everybody was getting out, airline tickets were cheap, and it, it was just, whoa, it was like, it was, it was bizarre how packed it was, and I was at Chicago, so it's a really, really busy airport, lots of people, lots of congestion, and I remember I was sitting, you know, in one of the seats in my gate, and where I was sitting directly ahead, you, you know, it was like all these restaurants. And so I was sitting there just looking at my phone and just kind of people watching. And in the midst of all of this, I saw a woman who was standing in line to order. And she had a lot going on. You know, she had her infant in one arm, and she had her big baby bag, and, you know, the purse and the other. And she had her like two and a half, three-year-old daughter like next to her and she was like holding and trying to like hold the baby. A lot going on and she's ordering food. And while this is happening, she got so distracted that the baby, that the little girl let go of her mommy's hand. And I'm just watching this whole thing unfold, right? And, you know, she's, she thinks she's holding her mom's hand and then she starts to kind of drift away, right? And then she looks up and she realizes like, 
You know, you imagine what the world looks like when you're surrounded by all these people. You're two and a half years old, and it's just like trees, like everywhere. And you can see the panic, and she's starting to become anxious. And then she's like, ah, right? She starts to cry. And again, I'm watching the whole thing. I wasn't being cruel. I mean, I knew she wasn't going to walk a block, right? I, I, I could step in at any point. And so I, I am watching this, and of course, it was just within a few seconds, right? The mother just comes in like, honey, honey, like comes down and, and holds her, and immediately her daughter is comforted. And it was interesting how quickly the daughter went from calm to anxious. Calm when she's near her mom, but just like that, super anxious when there was this gap between her and her mom. Now Paul tells us that because Jesus is near, we don't have to be anxious about anything because Jesus is near because Jesus your savior is near no matter what you're going through you don't have to be anxious in fact in everything let your request be made known to God everything because unlike this woman Jesus is not distracted Jesus is near, and he's watching over your life from minute to minute. Now, there are lots of reasons why we become anxious. Anxiety, and related to that, depression and mental health are very complicated matters. As you all know, mental mental illness, mental health is quickly becoming one of the greatest illnesses affecting millions of people in our country. And Paul gives a few commands or a few things to help us deal with anxiety. And this is not meant to be overly simplistic, but a few things that Paul tells us. On the one hand, he tells us to remember that the Lord is near. Remember that the Lord is near. And in fact, actively pursue the nearness of God to the extent that we can through meditating on and studying God's word by gathering together as God's people as all of us did this morning, by living in community and fellowship with other believers. So we remember the nearness of God, we pursue it, but we're also to pray. He says, let your, fa- let your Father in heaven know everything that's weighing you down, everything that causes you worry and anxiety, everything that causes you fear, everything that causes you sorrow, everything that you're tempted with that you feel like you just continue to give into the things that your heart longs for, the things that you feel like you need, all of it, bring those things to Jesus because the thoughts that fill our minds and the desires that fill our hearts are truly as vast as the ocean. And we're told that Jesus cares, that he's near. And Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is close, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted, that he saves those that are crushed in spirit, that he hears the cries of his children. The Lord is close. He is near the brokenhearted. He saves those, he saves those who are crushed in spirit and he hears the cries of his children. And let me ask you, are you brokenhearted? Do you find yourself crushed in spirit because of heartache, because of disappointment, because of the things that aren't playing out the way you had wanted. 
cry out to Jesus. He hears you and he will deliver. You know, when we pray and when we cry out to Jesus, we have this promise. This is the last part of the passage that, that, that we read this morning. We have this promise that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, I mean, it's mind-blowing. It surpasses what we can possibly imagine. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the word here, protect, is a military word. And this is a word that people there would have all been familiar with. Because as Philippi, being a Roman colony, the Roman Empire would have sent garrisons, would have sent soldiers to Philippi to protect Philippi from its enemies. And what Paul is saying here, just as Caesar sends soldiers to Philippi to protect it, when we pray, the God of heaven sends his peace to guard and protect our hearts and our minds. Get that? Our hearts and our minds our minds. Now the word mind, I didn't dwell on this at all this morning just in the interest of time. But the word mind and variations of that word is used throughout this letter in Philippians and in fact it's used several times even in this passage today. And a key theme throughout the book of Philippians is the idea of having the mind of Jesus. Having the mind of Jesus. And of course Paul tells us in Romans to be transformed by the renewal of your minds. You see, Paul understands that there is a profound relationship that how we think, what we think about, how we think has a profound impact on our lives. How we think, what we think about, what we fill our minds with have a strong relationship with our transformation with our maturity, with our becoming more and more like Jesus. And in Philippians 2, which is the centerpiece of this letter, which many of you know is all about the humility of Jesus, where God comes as a man, takes the form of a servant, he lives, he dies, rises again, and ascends into heaven. That is meant to the reality of God coming to us is meant to enable and empower everything that Paul is commanding us to do this morning. In the midst of real disagreement, we have the capacity to agree with each other. In the midst of despair, we have the capacity to rejoice always. When we're dealing with people who are unreasonable, we have the capacity to show gentle forbearance, to show patience. And as you start to sense anxiety bubbling, bubbling up in your heart, we have the capacity, the privilege to pray and to experience the peace of God. After all, um, that's what Jesus would have done. That's what Jesus did. That's what following in Jesus' footsteps is all about. But in order for us to have the mind of Jesus daily, we need to experience the grace of Jesus in a fresh way daily. And I say daily because as if you've been at New Life, you know that the gospel is not just you know, one way and 
ticket into heaven, that's it. You know, the gospel, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is, is what we're, where we're declared holy and righteous and we have no fear of condemnation. We're declared righteous and holy. But we also need the gospel as we continue on in our faith to become more and more like Jesus, to grow in our holiness, to grow in our righteousness, to, to be able to live out a life of obedience, to be able to live out a life of faith. In a world where everybody is only looking out for their own interests, looking to be served, looking to be great, looking to be first, looking to win, only the losing, the condescending, the dying, the serving, and the rising again, Jesus is powerful enough to change us and to propel us forward, to melt our pride enable us to live joyfully with obedience. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for their words. I know that even as this year has just begun, anxiety can fill our hearts so quickly and we, we are so quick to forget. We're so quick to forget the gospel. We forget Jesus that you are near. We forget that we are yours. And so thank you for this reminder. I pray that we as your people, um, that we would grow um, as people of faith, people who, are, who have the mind of Jesus and who are able to, to live out of that strong promise. So we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Robin Lee, Executive Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.